Welcome to Eat, Drink, Innovate, the podcast about food startups, innovators and entrepreneurs who are making their mark in Australia's dynamic food and beverage industry. The future of food is happening here. Come join Susie White at the table to eat, drink and innovate. Uh-huh. Hello everyone, I'm Susie White and welcome to episode 18 of the Eat, Drink, Innovate podcast. In this podcast, I talk with food startups, entrepreneurs and innovators to get behind the scenes and find out what they're doing in their business to make their mark in the Australian food industry. And in the aftertaste section, I give you a brief insight, learning or secret of success that I've gleaned from my guest's experience that just might help you in your own food business or startup. Today, I'm talking with Nathan Wakeford. He's the co-founder with Ben Kelly of Samage Fine Foods. It's a specialty beverage company known for their premium Kali drinking chocolate, Camellia specialty tea blends and raw goods like matcha powder and chai spices. In this episode, you'll hear how Nathan mixed their first drinking chocolate in his Melbourne lounge room, and 12 years on, this same Carly drinking chocolate remains one of their best-selling product lines. To generate enough income to support the two co-founders, Samage Fine Foods expanded its product offer into Camellia Specialty Teas, which encouraged Nathan to develop a love of travelling to far-flung tea plantations across Asia. And it provided the opportunity to develop private label tea blends for other well-known brands. Based on their success in Australia and with a desire to expand Samage Fine Foods globally, Nathan moved to Portland, Oregon, USA. And today, Samage is a growing multi-million dollar business supplying over 2,500 food service outlets globally and carving out an enviable foothold in the US, Australian and Asian markets. Plus, in this episode, you'll also learn about the importance of reaching early adopters and innovators to grow your food and beverage business during its startup stage or when launching new products. So welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, I thought it would be good to set the scene. So can you tell us kind of what your role is and what your business does? Sure. So myself and my business partner, Ben Kelly, founded Samaj Fun Foods. We're a specialty beverage company. I believe that in creating a better experience from a product level, then we can actually create a positive social and environmental difference. We have our, our own brands, which you might know of Camellia, which is a tea brand, Carly Chocolate. But we also do um, private label um, production. And we're behind some of the brands like Raw Essentials, Skinny Tea. We're now in development for some other customers like David Jones. But um, I guess what makes me tick and what, what inspires us is to really have products that taste amazing, but then using, I guess, conscious entrepreneurship to make uh, positive social change as well. Let's talk about that now. Let's go to the very start of the business. And what, what were you kind of doing before you started it? What was the, the reason you decided to start Samaj? Well, actually, my business partner came and knocked on my door and I'd only really met him two or three times for a mutual friend, but there must have been something that, um, you know, called him. But he, he arrived at my place on a Wednesday afternoon and said, look, I want to start a business with you. And I said, okay, well, what are you thinking? And at that time was to sell coffee. So we, we, I guess we traveled a little bit down that track, but then realized that who we were partnered with wasn't the right partner. But we recognized that we loved the food industry and the people involved. So um, we then went to drinking chocolate, which is our first product. 
again, I would look at doing a joint venture with someone, but then again, that kind of lost steam and we said, well, let's just make it ourselves. So the first product was is our Kali chocolate. That was a recipe that was created in my lounge room. I was living in Ivanhoe in the time, suburb of Melbourne. It was a product that was loved by people. You know, it gave a richer, more flavorful option that wasn't as heavy on the sugar content. Um, it's gluten-free, dairy-free. It took a lot of boxes, but it wasn't enough to support two people having, you know, left their jobs. So both Ben and myself, we worked in numerous jobs um, and we basically supported ourselves with some, I guess, some help emotionally and, and a little bit financially from our parents as well whilst we got this business off the ground. So um, we then launched the Camellia Tea probably about 18 months uh, later after the launch of Carly. And then we started to come into a break-even position once we had the multiple product lines going to that same customer base. How does one create a drinking chocolate recipe in one's lounge room? <laughs> what are you doing there? <laughs> yeah, so I, what I did is I contacted the confectionery manufacturers of Australia and I asked them for all of their uh, people who are importing cocoa into Australia. Um, I then got samples from as many different companies as I could and I just started tasting the cocos. I've always had a fascination and passion for food and then I started blending cocos and it took me quite some time to actually come up with a recipe that I was happy with. But that's the same recipe we're now selling to this day. I guess I had in mind that more being a food service product because that was my level of experience more than a retail product. So we just wanted something that was super tasty and flavorful, that was easy to make, that was shelf stable, could be shipped. Yeah, and then Carly was created. Unfortunately, the first batch that we made, we kind of worked with an unscrupulous blender because we didn't have our own blending equipment at the time. And he used a, a cheaper sugar and also used a cocoa powder that wasn't the one specified, but it was from the same supplier. And it caused problems in the milk. So literally the very first batch of chocolate that I made, we had to discard. And that was kind of a bit heart-wrenching, given that I'd been wasted the money that had been given to me from our family and our friends and had to go back and ask them for more. Oh, no. So this blender was someone you had found and was manufacturing it for you? Yeah. So we created the recipe, uh, we found the ingredients, and then when, you know, at the time we were green in business, we didn't realize the importance of having really good supply partners. Uh, you know, we probably went there thinking we were small and we didn't have any value. So we went on just really who the first person that would accept that they wanted to deal with us because a lot of the bigger companies we went to, they said we're just basically too small to deal with. So we're in that sort of difficult spot of having a product we, we felt was going to work, but then not being having any volumes that could really justify a large blender to take us on. So you've had to write off your first batch, lose the money that was invested by family and friends. How did you come back from that? How did you find then someone more trustworthy? Well, that was really quite demoralizing. I, I knew I couldn't sell a product through our food service channels. and I, I tried to sell it through <laughs> driving out to Caribbean Gardens Market and try to recover some of the products from just the general marketplace. But then after selling like three bags for a morning there, and I thought, well, we've got to do something different. Long story short, I had to go, I had to basically tell my friends and family I stuffed up and uh, I need to get some more money, <laughs> which wasn't a great conversation either. Oh, God. But they still trusted you. They gave you more money. Mm -hmm. Crazy, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can be convincing sometimes. And we did do the batch the second time. That sold, we were underway. But that wasn't the worst example, really, of, I guess, suppliers not really doing the right thing by us. It's only really been in probably the last, uh, I guess, five or six years, probably six years that we've really 
um, and our company's been going for 12, that we just said that we're not dealing with anyone that isn't a reflection of the, the type of company that we want to be recognised for. Let's talk about the Carly drinking chocolate then. You mentioned that and you touched on distribution. So I'd imagine food service distribution is quite hard to get because there are a lot of tea and coffee drinking chocolate suppliers. How do you cut through that? I'm kind of going through that again in the US. So I've recently moved to the US about 18 months ago or so, and I've had to start from scratch. Ultimately, you need some customers that are going to help you to position in the industry. So the early adopters and innovators that are willing to take a risk on something that's better. A lot of people, even if they've got a superior product, they won't move. So you really need a proven product in the marketplace. If you if you find the first 10 to 20 to 25 customers and they're iconic or they're really well respected within that marketplace, to get that distribution first is really essential. You can then go to a distributor and say, hey, I've got these customers. Um, would you like to take on that distribution for, for them? And they'll be willing because they've got, they've got a proven product that they know is going to move. And then they can leverage their strength of their reputation. But that's the tough part. And that can take some time. And do you remember your very first distribution gain in Australia? Uh, it was uh, Alpen Delicious. Actually, he's still a, a, a customer of ours in Melbourne. But really what it was was Ben and myself out doing sales and referring it to the distributor. So I actually think it's probably one of the best models. I think there's a value in having someone who's visiting every week. Uh, to that particular store, but typically they're not going to be experts in selling your product. So for me, it's really important that you show their stuff how to sell your product and go on the road with them, but also refer them sales to help, especially those first 20 to 25 customers who are going to help to position your market that they can then use as a referral. It's the types of businesses that are using the product and make it easy for them to sell. You mentioned earlier on you like to have a relationship with your suppliers as well and um, supporting them is, is really part of the company ethos. Tell me a little bit about the – does that play through with the Carly drinking chocolate, which I think uses West African cocoa? Do you have connection and relationships with the suppliers there? We do, but cocoa is a bit of a unique thing, right, because you've got two or three companies based in Europe. There's huge processes that take care of that supply chain. So in specifics to the sugar, in specifics to, you know, certain elements of the cocos we're using, especially now when we launch another drinking chocolate, which is a, a, what we call our 60%. Then we've been more specific. We've got a Maracaibo region cocoa from South America. We've got a specific Panela sugar that we're using from Chitarake in Colombia. When you're talking the cocoa, if you're buying from, a, I guess, a more established provider of cocoa powders, I don't always mention the specific farm. With tea, we're much better able to, to get into specific farm. And, and I've been to about 170-odd tea farms throughout Asia. So I'm able to mention the farm. I meet with the farmers on a regular basis. And because we're able to better control the processing, it's not a consolidated, centralized processing that happens in cocoa. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. And you mentioned the teas there, and let's talk about those. So you'd started with the Carly drinking chocolate, but trying to support Ben and yourself, you realised maybe there wasn't enough scale there. 18 months later, you bought in the Camellia tea range. Now, why did you think tea was a, was a better opportunity for you? We were sitting in a cafe, having this chocolate and going, well, we've got now I've got customers that are buying the chocolate from us, and the, the customers were asking, what else do you sell? We knew we needed to find a product that fit with that distribution channel that we thought we could enhance the quality of. So I started researching who the local tea suppliers were in Australia. And I found that was a lot less established from a food service perspective. There's T2, there's Larson Thompson. And I approached, you know, as an example, Larson Thompson. I said, you know, are you interested in doing a joint venture or going to business with us? He wasn't. So 
so then I knew I had to go source tea directly myself. I connected with another guy, Ken from Eat Right Australasia, who was doing Nature's Cup of Tea brand. And he was doing retail, but not food service. So there was an opportunity to share containers with the tea plantation that he was dealing with because we didn't have the volumes for a full container. But I knew for margins, we need to have some sort of direct supply. So fortunately, Ken was really generous in sharing container space and warehousing space. But uh, ultimately, we outgrew him. And really, I guess what catapulted us was I went and did my first trip to Sri Lanka, and that really transformed things. I knew that there was a huge opportunity then because I felt the tea experience being offered in Australia wasn't what it could be. In the same way that what inspired our drinking chocolate, the drinking chocolate at the time wasn't what it could be. I've had a look at your website, Nathan, and I've seen you offer two ranges of specialty tea. You have a sort of a classic range and a reserve range. Tell me about the difference because on that reserve, some of those I have never heard of. <laughs> We're also launching a premium range this year. So we kind of operate in the good, better, best kind of philosophy. Now, the classic range is going to be more highly mechanized teas in terms of mechanizing production. With the camellia, it's more it's going to be hand picked, it's organic, so it's considered, you know, more premium. Uh, something like the premium selection um, is more likely to also be hand picked. The reserve selection is kind of like a whole different level. Typically it's hand processed, hand picked, and they're often going to be ancient tree or wild tree teas. So teas that are could be anywhere from 150 up to you know a thousand plus years old. And how do you know what blends to bring to the market, Nathan? What are sort of cafes and restaurants looking for? Uh, it's an interesting question, and it's something that I'm finding differs by the market we're in. Like US is very different to Australia. US is a big, a stronger focus on herbal and iced tea blends, whereas Australia is much more focused on black tea consumption, chais perhaps. But long story short, we launch teas uh, every year. This year we're launching probably 30 new teas, which is kind of not normal because we're launching the new tea range. We keep only the best sellers. So the normal that's probably at five or six teas, and then we, we refresh the rest of the range. That's an opportunity for us to see what the market wants. But part of our whole, I guess, approach to our business model is for me to go source teas, bring advanced samples back, have our key customers try those samples. The samples that meet their preferences, we end up buying. There's somewhere between that and my own intuition about what's going to sell. And ultimately, if if my staff members and myself are very passionate about a tea, then we're going to, we're going to be more likely to, to push or recommend that tea. The turmeric chai, as an example, which is a huge seller for us and a fast-growing one, I knew turmeric was a trend that was happening in the market. There had already been turmeric powder lattes that had been launched, but there was no fresh turmeric chai, you know, one where we actually use fresh grated turmeric, which creates a different flavor sensation, I guess, mouthfeel on the palate. So part of it's knowing ingredients and, and cuts and how things go together, as well as knowing the, understanding the health side. So uh, for us, it, it really depends on one, the, the, I guess the environmental circumstances, what's in trend, but also going, oh, well, how can we enhance on what's ready in the market to create a you know, superior experience? We exist in the food service uh, channel because there's a greater, I guess, elasticity in the level of quality and price point they're willing to, to pay uh, versus uh, when you're in a supermarket, they're going to make a two or three second decision. So having a direct relationship with the consumer in the food service channel also enables us to educate them a lot more. Gotcha. And those ingredients sound delicious, by the way. I'd love to know, you know, what what do you think of the traveling? Are you personally having to get out there and travel a lot still? I do the majority of the sourcing and the majority of the international sales. I used to travel for more, you know, three and four weeks at a time. Now I try to keep my trips to seven, eight, nine days. And uh, I run a tea brewing competition in China. 
So that takes me back there every year. Uh, and now my partners in China have requested they run it in Paris and France as well. So between my commitments in Australia, our launching in the US, um, there's a lot of travel involved, but it's certain things like sourcing tea is something I really love because I love being out in the, the tea plantations. And I guess we're 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 not yet a, a big, big company, even though I guess by Australian tea company standards, we probably are. There's still a lot of hands work. You know, you have to wear multiple hats. So yeah, the travel is involved, but it's, it's something that I love to do when it's when it's either visiting a tea plantation or ultimately if it's opening up a new market because both are kind of exciting things to, to do. And do you still have to go off the beaten track quite a bit to get to some of these plantations? I love that part the most about it. When I first did my first trip to Sri Lanka, you know, 10 and a half years ago, I literally was taking trains and buses and I didn't really know people in the industry. It's a little different this, these times. While I still go to remote areas, usually I'm, I've got an entourage of people that are taking me there. Um, I go to some very, very remote areas, in, especially Yunnan and places like that, to source wild tree teas and things like that. But it's uh, all dirt roads, but there's actually roads. <laughs> It's time for a quick break now. When we come back, you'll hear how Nathan scaled up Samaj Fine Foods by moving to Portland, USA. There, he had to start from scratch and hit the pavements again to sell in the premium range of Carly drinking chocolates and Camellia tea to sceptical local businesses. I'd like to say a quick thanks to today's sponsor who helped make this podcast possible, the Monash Food Innovation Centre. They can help you fast track and de-risk your new products in the Australian market or export markets like China. Did you know that only one in 10 food and beverage products survive the first year of launch? That means nine out of 10 fail. If you'd like to be one of those businesses that gets it right, then the Monash Food Innovation Center can help. It has cutting edge technologies, product development services, and runs capability workshops to upskill business owners and employees in the art and science of food innovation. Whether you're a food startup or a large corporation, check them out at www.foodinnovationcenter.com and see how they can help grow your business through innovation. Welcome back. Today, I'm talking to Nathan Wakeford from Samaj Fine Foods, and so far, you've heard how he and co-founder Ben started the business from Melbourne, Australia in 2006, and how they expanded their range from drinking chocolate into specialty teas. And Nathan had just mentioned judging in a tea competition, and so I asked him, was this the World Tea Championship that he co-founded, and why exactly did he start this? Uh, well, I had a background in coffee. I organized the Australian Brewster Championships one year, and I, I was a chairman of the Victorian chapter of, of ASCA, which is the Coffee Association. I saw that there was a need to run an association for tea. The foundation of those tea associations is a tea competition. So I saw on the coffee side of things, there was a World Brewster Championships, and it really brought the industry together and, and identified people who were leading that, the industry or creating innovation. And I knew that there was an opportunity for tea. In China, uh, there's many tea competitions focused around the actual tea quality, but there was nothing focused around tea brewing and tea service. I then brought that to a competition, which has been running. It's now the largest tea brewing competition in China. Uh, we've been running um, events at CL, which is one of the larger trade shows in Shanghai. And I'm in the process of doing a partnership to run 
with a, China's largest um, tea expo or tea trade show organizers. They run 23 trade shows across China. So we're going to be running events next year, uh, regional events across China. Something like that, Nathan, could obviously suck up a lot of time and a lot of resource. Why would this help your business? <laughs> well, I've got a partner in China, so they do the majority of the organization on a ground level. Um, I've created the rules. I've created the judges' certification programs. Um, it does suck up a, a reasonable amount of time. I don't make direct money from it, to be frank. Um, it's probably a loss, but it, indirectly it helps a lot. I get to meet some of the China's best tea producers. I, I get to meet some of their des- best tea masters. So it gives us, uh, I guess, knowledge of farms and they're more likely to do business with me in an equitable slash integrous kind of way. So there's indirect benefit that will happen in terms of um, the level of knowledge that I'm able to, to accrue and the product quality that we're able to obtain uh, and, and the industry relevance that also comes from that. You know, it adds to our brand story and, uh, and my reputation and things like that. Yeah, and it seems to lift the entire category up in terms of expertise and building connections and collaborations. Now, I'd love to talk about your product range a little bit more because I know you started with Carly drinking chocolate. You then went on to the uh, Camellia tea range, which we've been talking about. I saw recently, though, you started this new foray into something called raw goods. Can you tell us about that? I guess I should take a little bit step back and talk about one of the other products, which is our fresh chai because it, it links to raw goods. So the fresh chai is our biggest selling tea line. Um, I think we blend in the order of about 50 tonne. So it's a big, big product by tea standards in Australia. Because we're buying so much spices for that product, we then thought, well, why don't we make those spices available to other consumers? And I guess raw goods then involved from, we weren't really interested in just being an ingredient to try that. We were interested in value adding. So essentially it's a platform for businesses in the tea and cocoa and spice and herb space. So if you're someone like David Jones, you might come to us and say, hey, listen, I need a, I need a, a David Jones tea line. And then we'll create not only you know, all the blends and recipes for them, we'll support them with their labeling, um, even their design, because we've got proven products, brands in the marketplace, um, as opposed to just being a, a commodity or a herb trader. We actually give them advice on the final product that they're able to sell. So we'll literally create, help them to create the brand story, the brand aesthetic, the, the product fit for their market channel. So essentially all they need to do is place a purchase order and we'll fulfill you know, their product solution, which is kind of unique in the marketplace. Is that attracting a whole new customer base for you? That seems to be shifting a little bit away from your, your classic restaurants and cafes distribution chain. Yeah, it is. We've got one of our clients is now through Coles. Um, I know that they're a very, very, very fast-growing co- uh, company. And then now we're setting up a blending plant in Port in Oregon. So you know, this customer, if they want to launch in the U.S., they don't have to worry about all the things, the learning lessons we've had to go through in establishing trade inside the U.S. And we can open that channel for them. Fantastic. And let's talk about your two offices, because obviously you do have one in Collingwood, and you mentioned that you started the business here in Australia. The shift to and the opening of the Portland office, was that for personal reasons, or is that is that so that you can then go and expand in that market? We tried to expand to New Zealand before, and we found that if a person core to the business wasn't available in that market, then it, it's very a low chance of success. We, we saw that the market opportunity in Australia was perhaps not as great 
as in the US, where I feel that when I, I did an earlier trip across here and I found that there's no real fresh chai being sold here in the US with any great volume or success, no real premium drinking chocolates, and then there are our two biggest categories in Australia. So I made a decision that I wanted to move here really because of the market opportunity. You know, you got 320 odd million people plus um, versus Australia's 25 million odd. We, we had the intention to be a global company from day one and all of our supply chains set up for that. Um, so I saw the opportunity for that and providing Australian products, which tend to be lower in sugar and healthier for you than the ones in the market, more complexity of flavor for, for an audience that already understood who we were. And it's clearly a huge market to conquer. Does runs on the board in Australia as an Australian business, does that kind of count over there? Is that influential or are you having to sort of prove yourself and start from scratch? Yes and no. It's useful for the Australian customer base that's here. The fact that they knew the types of businesses we supplied, like, you know, 100-odd coffee roasters across in Australia, that was that was relevant to Australian business. But to be frank, when you're talking Portland to a lot of the iconic businesses there, they they don't care. You're not, especially in Portland. If you're not a local, then you know there's an even greater hurdle to jump. It's probably meant that you know we're able to replicate our business a lot faster. A benefit from having that experience in Australian success has been operationally a, a big advantage. But having said that, from a a market positioning, no, I've had to door knock and go through the you know the, the emotional challenge of being rejected a whole lot. But customers now, you know, we're a year in the market. Customers that didn't have an interest a year ago and have now seen us pop up all across in all the best cafes in, you know, for instance, in Portland and in New York. Now they're coming back and wanting to deal with us. You know, and now we've got a, a distributor in Portland that's combining our product superiority with his relationships. We're really starting to, to grow quite quickly now. Oh, terrific. That's great news. And now a personal question. I hope you don't mind, but I just was interested. Were you moving a family over with you, Nathan? No, a lone ranger. I actually think it makes it more difficult. Oh, tell me why. If you go to a new city where you've got no emotional support, you're by yourself, you don't have a friend circle, if you've got a partner, it helps a lot more to have some sort of support you can come back to. Emotionally, it was pretty tough for the first six months because I went from having the status and standing that I have in Australia and the, you know just the awareness of our products and our, our brand to being a nobody. And then getting a lot of rejections and forgetting, <laughs> wondering if I actually knew how to sell. But um, it really just it brought me back to the foundations and, and really getting, I guess, better at that. <laughs> and, uh, so I would suggest that it's, it's tougher not having any sort of emotional support at all. Yeah. Okay. Oh, no, thank you. Thank you for that insight. Let's now talk about the size of the business. So you're obviously, as you mentioned, you're, you know, there's a lot of success happening in Australia and clearly expansion now happening in the US. And you mentioned earlier the T2 brand. Obviously, that's been purchased by Unilever, by a huge multinational company. Has, um, have you ever been approached and has anyone been interested in buying your business? Yeah, many times. It's an interesting position. I think within the Australian market, we've got a very strong brand. Um, we're highly attractive. I get offers. I've had probably two or three this year alone. We're not really in a position where we're interested in selling just yet. We're coming into the strength of our business. Like I think we're on a very strong growth trajectory. And we see with the US market, we think that the US market is going to be even bigger than obviously than what the Australian market is purely because of the, the, you know, the size of the market here. And it almost feels it's taken us 12 years to get to a place of financial standing uh, and business security that we have now uh, got ourselves to. But having said that, now we're investing heavily in the U.S. market. 
we want to see we'd rather see a return on that investment before we'd even think about the entertaining idea of selling. Now is not the right time and there's a lot of growth and a lot of potential behind the business. I feel like I've neglected talking about your co-founder and I'm wondering how do you divide the tasks up between yourself and what Ben does? Ben's foundational to the business. He looks after the operational aspects of the business in Australia. My focus has been on sales and product development and sourcing. Ben has been on the day-to-day operations of managing the teams, um, manage, you know, just basically ensure the business runs, managing the finances. That's all Ben. I'm probably more of a face to the industry, but Ben's in, absolutely intrinsic and crucial to the success of Samaj, has been from day one. I mean, I can't speak high enough of him as a partner. In fact, we've been in business 12 years together and probably in a, a stronger relationship now than we've ever have been. You know, we've gone through a hell of a lot. Just, uh, and I made, I made myself emotional even even just, you know, knowing what he brings and his, his contribution commitment to creating what Samaj is about. In, in, in a lot, the business exists because, as I said, because he came to my front door one day and said he wanted to work with me. So wrapping up, if there's anyone in this space listening who is thinking, wow, that's an amazing journey and that's exactly what I want to do with my life, build a really meaningful business, what advice would you have for any other sort of food entrepreneurs or startups? I think a lot of people make a mistake because they're passionate about food. They think that they could be successful in a food business. For me, that's, a, that's only one ingredient. Being passionate about food and having that, you know, that vision and, and, and the integrity to create something that's truly Yum and beautiful, and is going to make people happy from an experience point of view. For me, that's that's essential. But the other side is actually having business acumen and strength. And I think the the businesses that are really successful, they can they have the right business model, and they can they they have the right market awareness and the of the opportunity, and they fundamentally know how to run a business. A lot of great ideas don't ever really get far because there's not the strong business knowledge. So you have to have both. You have to have an amazing product offering, but you also have to run, know how to run a business properly. And I think and if you can, if you marry the two, then, then I think you can be successful. Great words of wisdom there. And you did mention um, something that leads me nicely into one of my final questions, which is how would people get in touch with you or find out more about your business, Nathan? So, I mean, you can go to, um, if it's in the US, www.samaj.com. If it's uh, in Australia, it's www.samaj.com.au, and that's S-O-M-A-G-E. What an inspiring story. And 12 years going strong. Clearly, you're on a on a huge projection of growth. And um, look, I wish you every success in the future, and I'm definitely going to be keeping an eye out and seeing what else is in store. I'm more excited than ever to be leading a company that's got such amazing staff with such a bright future and, and a big vision. So... Yeah, I'm excited too. Thank you so much, Nathan. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Aftertaste, the sweet taste of success. Thanks for sticking around. This is the part of the podcast when I think back on my chat with Nathan Wakeford of Samaj Fine Foods and reflect on an insight from his specialty beverage business. And today I was really struck by Nathan's model for startup success. He said... You need some customers that are going to help position you in the industry, the early adopters and innovators that are willing to take a risk on something that is better. A lot of people, even if I've got a superior product, they won't move. Find the first 10, 20 or 25 customers. That's really essential. 
Now, Nathan's used this approach twice successfully. Firstly, in Australia, when he started up the business and needed to disrupt a crowded food service marketplace by supplying hot chocolate and specialty teas. And he then repeated it when he started from scratch again in Portland, Oregon. There, he quickly found that his Australian reputation didn't mean much to the local businesses. Instead, he had to door knock and find those early adopters who were interested in buying a higher quality, authentic product. This then enabled Nathan to attract a local distributor, having proven that he had interesting customers and a product that would sell through. Now, when Nathan refers to the early adopters and innovators, He's referring to the innovation adoption lifecycle model, and that's what I'd like to talk to you about today because it's still very relevant, especially for food and beverage products during their startup phase. The innovation adoption lifecycle model was first proposed in 1957 by agricultural researchers Bolan, Beal, and Rogers, and it was based on their study of the diffusion of best practices in farming. It wasn't until later, in 1962, that Everett Rogers generalised the model's use to describe how new ideas and technology spread according to the types of consumers who purchase or adopt a new idea, product or technology. So simply picture the life cycle model as a bell curve. It classifies consumers into five types as you move along the bell curve. Let me tell you who these people are. The lowest part of the curve... This is the first 2.5% of consumers who are called innovators. These people are natural risk takers. They're excited by the possibility of new ideas and products and happy to pay more to be the first adopters. They don't really expect product perfection and they certainly don't need other people's influence or approval to buy something new. As you move along the curve, the next 13.5% of consumers are known as early adopters. Now, these are the second phase of product purchases following innovators. These people tend to be influential thought leaders and like to make informed decisions about new and emerging products. They often share their reviews of new products on what they really like or dislike via social media. Now imagine we're approaching the top of the bell curve and here you'll find the next 34% of the marketplace. This is called the early majority group. These consumers will only start buying a product once it begins to have mass market appeal. There's a lot of information about it and it's widely available. Since they're relatively risk averse, they tend to look to the early adopters to decide whether to invest in a product or not. Now imagine we're tipping onto the downwards curve now, and the next 34% of consumers are called the late majority. These are the risk-averse skeptics who will only buy very mainstream, tried and tested products, and usually look for a good price discount or a promotion. And then we're at the very bottom end of the bell curve, and you'll find the last 16% of all consumers. These are known as the laggards. Laggards are usually the last to purchase a new product, if at all. They prefer to stick to traditional and established products and are highly averse to change and risk. It is important to remember that people can change their position on the life cycle adoption curve depending on different categories or product types. So, for example, while I might be an innovator in ice cream products and try everything new the minute it hits the marketplace, 
I'm more like a late majority when it comes to iPhone apps, and I tend to wait to see what the most popular version is before I commit to buying one. So how can knowledge of this innovation adoption lifecycle model really help you and your business? Well, just like Nathan did at Samaj Fine Foods, if you're starting a new business or launching a new product, your very first goal is to attract the innovators and early adopters. This is an active search you've got to undertake for customers who are always willing to try something new and different, even when they're satisfied with their current product. It's a waste of time and money to spend your resources trying to attract the attention of the mass majority at startup phase or at a new product launch, because there simply isn't enough information, evidence, or social pressure to entice them to overcome their risk aversion and buy something new. Instead, your goal is to find your early innovators and adopters. These are the people you should be asking for feedback on your new product formulations and recipes, your early packaging designs, your look and feel of branding, and even your pricing models. They're the ones who also will respond first to your early social media posts. If you get these people on board, then they'll become your best advocates to influence the early and late majority crowds to come along for the ride. Marketing guru Seth Godin calls this the secret of new marketing, and he recommends you get it right for just 10 people before you rush around trying to scale up for the masses. He says it very simply, find 10 people, 10 people who need what you have to sell or want it. And if they love it, you win. If they love it, they'll each find you 10 more people or a hundred or a thousand. If they don't love it, you need a new product start over. So by getting it right for those first 10 people, those early innovators and adopters, slowly and surely your product sales and business will exponentially grow. Well, that's it for episode 18. I'd like to thank my guest today, Nathan Wakeford of Samaj Fine Foods for sharing his inspiring business experience with us. If you'd like to learn more about Samaj Fine Foods and connect with Nathan as one food entrepreneur to another, I'll include his social media links in the episode 18 show notes at www.eatdrinkinnovate/podcast. Thank you again for listening. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and share it with a fellow food startup or entrepreneur. Join me next time to eat, drink and innovate. Do you have any suggestions about successful food or beverage entrepreneurs and innovators in Australia that you think Susie should be talking to? You can get in touch with her at eatdrinkinnovate.com.au forward slash podcast and find all the show note links and innovation resources there too. And if you like this podcast, please help others discover it by leaving a review on Apple Podcast, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. 